Hi there and welcome to another episode of Architect Tomorrow. This one is an audio only episode and in fact the conversation you're about to hear was recorded in collaboration with Beyond the Hype, the podcast that Scott Logic runs and I now work for Scott Logic. So this was a bit of a mashup episode. But you'll hear Johanna from the Finnish National Gallery talking about her experimentation and innovation with metaverse technologies and web three technologies. You'll also talk uh, here from my friend Lily. Uh, and also Colin, uh, the CTO of Scott Logic, and we're talking about experimentation and innovation in the metaverse and with the Web three technologies. It's a nice overview of getting started with this area, thinking about what the possibilities are and, and, and what works right now and what doesn't, and some of the challenges that lie ahead with some of these technologies. And I kind of close with my sort of take on where I see some of these platforms and sort of architectures heading. So. Slightly different episode this one. Uh, love to get your feedback on it. If you'd like to hear more audio-only podcasts like this, please do let me know. Um, and do go and check out the Beyond the Hype um, podcast as well. But with that, let's join Johanna talking about the uh, Finnish National Gallery's innovation and experiments in the metaverse. We started on the Finnish metaverse in late May, early June this year. So it's been a really quick pilot case diving into into the uh, Web 3.0 or Metaverse. And um, and because we're all about 2D images, we're a museum, a national museum with 43,000 uh, images and, and artworks with images of those artworks. Um, I think it's really interesting to see how that works in a 3D virtual environment. And, um, and because of the people who hang out in those virtual environments are, for the most part, and this is purely my guess, uh, quite different to the people who visit our museums in Finland, which are in physical positions, obviously, in Helsinki. But we do have um, a willingness and uh, and to, to look forward and, and find out what we could do on the internet and in virtual spaces and, and figure out if people are interested in art and art history and history behind the art um, in, in Web3. So I think... That has been one of, one of the reasons why we wanted to go ahead and, and uh, pilot something on Decentraland. I must admit, I'm, I'm really intrigued as to find out how you got to the point where you decided, yes, this is a thing we're going to do. Have you got a history with of experimentation? Because I, I, things like virtual reality, augmented reality, and even the internet has been around for a while. Have you Have you historically experimented with these other platforms that take you outside of the bricks and mortar buildings we have we have um we've done several several things with uh, augmented reality and uh, they've been part of our educational programs in uh, at least two of our three museums and we uh, there's a finnish manufacturer of headset called Varia, and they wanted to come and um and do the imaging of, of one of our main galleries several years ago and then we got to see what it looks like on like super hd headsets with the construction um, industry at the moment at, at that time and that was kind of a wow moment for me maybe that was maybe six years ago and uh, it, it kind of stayed in, in the background it didn't make any sense to do anything at that time headsets their headsets were really really expensive at that time and now it's come down to maybe a thousand euros uh, on, on a consumer level and um, so yeah I think I'm sort of personally really interested in everything that technology can bring to or what museums can bring to the to the te technological sphere I suppose and I also I mean because we're a non nonprofit I think that's also something in, uh, incredibly interesting and uh, important to have in anything new that you build that it's not all for for 
profit. I don't have problem with with companies making a profit, but there are a lot of people who can't afford the 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 merchandise or the or the products that are made for profit. It'd be great to get onto the sort of intersection between digital art and kind of real world and all that sort of stuff. Like that's sort of a fascinating emerging area. But I mean, Colin, perhaps before we kind of go sort of more deeply into the sort of space, you and I were talking about sort of the differences between sort of the different versions of the web. And you saw the sort of stuff that you were saying, Colin, was sort of quite quite interesting, like sort of web one being the broadcast kind of medium, uh, two being about more centralization, but then three potentially not being, you know, anyway, I don't want to say the words out of your mouth because what you were saying was great. Yeah, I, I, I keep trying to work out, you know, what web three actually means. And you mentioned right back at the beginning uh, that there's potentially going to be conflicting opinions. The problem I have with Web3 is that I've got conflicting opinions sitting right inside my head. Every, every day I seem to be contradicting myself and changing my mind as to whether I think this is amazing or whether I think it's terrible. So with, with, with that in mind, I think my understanding of Web 1.0 or what it represents was the early internet. It was, um, it was decentralized in that uh, a lot of the people operating on the internet had quite a close sort of association with the hardware that ran the internet. I remember being at university where we had a web page for the, for the physics department I was working in and I could point to the box that it was running on. And it was back in the, back in the days where if you said, oh, I want to run a web server, someone would go, oh yeah, okay, we'll open that computer up to the world. That's absolutely fine. Right. <laughs> These days you wouldn't play so, uh, so loose with security, but back then it was a safer world, but it, it was, it was decentralized in that respect. Pretty much anyone could bring their hardware to the, the internet, connect it up and they could then create their web pages. And I think that's what web 1.0 is supposed to be about at web 2.0. Again, I, I struggle with the definition of this one, but I think it's more about the, the sort of centralization that's occurred, the consolidating around public cloud providers, for example, they, they now predominantly provide the infrastructure, but it's also platform consolidation. I did quite enjoy the early years of the internet where a lot of people had their own websites, whereas now lots of things are centralized on Facebook, LinkedIn, and the social media platforms that my kids use that I don't understand. So I think that's web 2.0 and web three is some sort of nebulous term that describes going back to a more sort of decentralized model. I think that the main objection people have is about the, I think it's more the platform centralization that concerns people than the infrastructure centralization. It's more that everything seems to be on Facebook, YouTube, that sort of thing. We don't have ownership of our data anymore. So I think that's what web 3.0 is. Although I read on the Ethereum webpage, they have a completely different description. Web one, it was read, web two is read, write. Web three is read, write, own. Yeah, that, that, that read, write, own seems to be the general consensus view. And, but, I, but I do fear that this whole thing is conflating in a bunch of things. So I think, it's, yeah. I think on the one hand, you've got like how the underlying infrastructure of the internet or whatever replaces it, be that the metaverse, whatever it is that kind of you know, supplements it becomes. And then I think you have the way that we as human beings interact with technology and interact with each other. And I think that's the whole human-computer interaction, the augmented reality, the virtual reality. And then the decentralized piece is really interesting. And of course, there's, there's been all the sort of cryptocurrencies and things that like you've touched on Ethereum. And it, and it feels like there's a number of things that people are kind of suggesting. The hypothesis is these things will form the future of the web. But actually, 
the reality is I think we will see what the reality of the future of the web will be because that will be what people adopt and how things unfold. So it feels a little bit like trying to kind of, it's a hammer, kind of trying to look for the nails in, 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 in some cases. But I think there is definitely some value in thinking about what's broken today, what doesn't work well. I think, Colin, you touched on one part of that, which is privacy and sort of what I call the sort of dark, fixing the darker side of digital, like algorithms that in dark UX pans and things like that that aren't that aren't helping sort of users, you know, they're, they're perhaps hooking users in when they don't realize. And there are, there are a few things in the web too that, that could do with fixing, which p- p- perhaps the technologies that people are pushing aren't necessarily always the answer for that. Before I throw this open, the other thing I would just say is the decentralized piece is interesting because how decentralized are some of these technologies going to be? Because if we take crypto, most people are buying it through an exchange or for a wallet, which is actually a centralized piece of technology. The idea that everyone will become a part of the, a node essentially on the network, which is a suppose, the ultimate decentralized case is where, a bit like you were saying, Colin, if you wanted to run a web server, you would you would physically run it on your machine. It feels like to get back to true decentralization, we'd all need to have some sort of piece of hardware in our homes or, or some bit of personal infrastructure that was contributing towards the system. Otherwise, it still feels like the centralized web two world. And Lily, I don't know if you have a sort of view on on, on that, do you do you agree from your experiences, or, or what's yeah. what's your sort of take on this one? I, I think this is a really interesting topic that you you you, you broached, and and to a large extent, I agree with you. What we're starting to see, while there's a significant promise around decentralization in crypto, and I think there was a lot of enthusiasm, and there still is in the industry. It's really important to differentiate not just the promise, but the application of what is happening today. And you're absolutely right. As much as we talk about decentralization, very often the vast majority of people do buy their crypto through centralized exchanges. And that completely goes against those earlier values of the industry. Where I probably would diverge slightly from what you were saying is I, I think that it's important to also recognize there are very different roles in the industry. So I don't necessarily think everybody runs needs to run their own node, but we probably need to be a lot more careful around where and how you where and how you buy these assets. So do you hold them in a centralized exchange or do you hold them yourself in a ledger? And one of my favorite sayings in the industry is not your keys, not your crypto. And that would probably be quite different from necessarily running a node itself. And Johanna, how has how has um, your organization handled this? I mean, are you are you kind of you know, truly kind of embracing all elements that are being talked about? Or are you largely looking at the sort of virtual reality sort of worlds like Decentraland? But of course, Decentraland has that element of decentralization. Talk, talk to us a bit about what the priorities, I suppose, were for you with this experimentation that you're doing. This is very, I mean, as far as the Meta Gallery um, pilot goes, it's very much the first step. So we're actually just doing a pilot on Decentraland and just, just monitoring visitors and figuring out what, what, how art uh, interacts with, with the avatars and, or the avatars with the art. Yeah, I was going to say, it's interesting that... I guess with other sort of forays into the digital world, I mean, take a trivial example, setting up a website, mm. there are there are loads of, you could either do it yourself, mm. there are loads of people that, that could help you with that. Yeah. I'm just interested, once you got, once you managed to convince people, hey, we're going to go into the metaverse, <laughs> how on earth do you do that? That's, ah. it, it can't be, it can't be easy or obvious. No, but it was, uh, this is, this, uh, this was serendipity at, at its purest. The Finnish Innovation Fund, Citra. So they're um, uh, the, like the future house of Finland. Um, they were interested in what a DAO is and how DAOs work. And they've been in discussion with um, the marketing director of Decentraland, who happens to be a Finnish lady. So uh, so they're kind of like, hmm, DAOs, interesting. Decentraland, that's a DAO. Hmm, we know someone in Decentraland. We should do something on Decentraland 
let's put in art. Who do we know in the art space? The Finnish National Gallery. And, uh, and we just all happened to be in the same meetings, like in the space of two weeks. And we decided to do something really quickly. Um, Maria uh, Kontinen, who is the marketing director of Decentraland, she got the, got us the parcel in uh, the museum di- district in Decentraland for free. And then we just, you know, found, found a Finnish company called Adventure Club who did the building of the pavilion. And then it's just been a rollout of it. It's been super quick. And, uh, and I think largely because everyone wanted to do it. It's, it's not, you know, I just read somewhere that, um, Nike has 21 million people visiting their Roblox site. So that's not something that we're aiming for. And that's not something we're hoping for. I don't think we could handle it. It, This is a team of three and the Finnish national gallery, but, uh, but this kind of happened, I think, because it was meant to. I really do. Yeah, I must admit, I I tried to find the gallery because I've not yeah. used Decentraland before. It's not I, easy. Uh, I, I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I struggled. Yeah. I, I, User interface I found it needs a little a lot bit, of work. I found it a bit bewildering and a little, little bit lonely from my perspective yeah. in, in Decentraland. I probably needed to get one of my kids who plays Roblox and Minecraft right. to show me, you know, show me the yeah. ropes. Yeah. yeah, I was I was hunting hunting for the art gallery. It's a shame I couldn't find it. So have you, have you had feedback from... Uh, you, you mentioned right back at the beginning, right. which I think was really interesting, was to understand the different types of people that might interact with the art mm. in your gallery now that it's in, in a metaverse, mm. you know, the types of people that mm. wouldn't walk into the art gallery. Have you had any direct connection with them? Do, do, you, do you know how, how they feel? On web too, on, on social media, we've had, we've had yeah. feedback. Say, for instance, when you go to the gallery and there's a set of 12 pieces of art that are by Finnish uh, man artists. So we created a switch where you can switch into contemporary Finnish women artists. And, uh, and we thought that was uh, kind of like setting the records straight, that there was a lot of uh, women artists at the time who, who did great work and, and they were portrayed in, in Paris in, in 1900. Well, this we got the quite angry feedback from saying why women and men in, you know, 2022, this is not uh, the way things should be. And you're marketing it wrong. It should be, you know, something else. So yeah, we're getting all kinds of, of feedback. Most of it is, you know, tapping on the, on the back saying, well done. And that's kind of special. And, uh, and, and hopefully as we do a study about the pavilion, with the University of Oulu, we'll get some actual feedback from people who visit and revisit and, and with a bit more technological background as well to figure out um, what the actual user know. So as you go into Decentraland, you can have a chat with someone in real time, but it's hard to figure out um, who's been there and uh, and how they feel about it. So, so that- Yeah, I, tr- I tried that real-time chat feature with a few random people. Some of them weren't particularly nice. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I've, I've heard as well. So... So there are all kinds of features um, in in the virtual reality that uh, that are not always nice. Yeah, what I wanted to kind of ask was: Has this led to sort of interesting conversations around digital art? Because of course, what you've got in there at the moment, I have I have visited the yeah. gallery, and I thought the building itself was really impressive. Is it the gallery itself? Is that what the building that's, that's is? That's what or... the the Finnish pavilion in the Paris World Expo in in 1900 looked like. So is is your is your main motivation here just? exploration of different ways to interact with people, different ways to bring art to people rather than, oh, this is the future of the internet. We'd better go in that direction. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, there are so many millions and millions of people who are in virtual reality, in in Roblox, in in Sandbox, in in Decentraland. See if there's a space in there that's that's, um, 
somewhere where we should be. And of course, um, going forward, if this is the next web, we also need to figure out if this is a way to make money for the museum as well. We're a nationally funded institution. Um, I'm not expecting funding to go up. I'm expecting funding to go down in, in the future. So uh, so this is also something that, that we need to understand. But because we are a museum, we take very small steps. We, we don't put in, you know, all the money into a single pilot, but we pilot learn and then hopefully in the future with, with good collaborators um, then figure out how money can be made. You, you say you take very small steps, mm. but I think you're in the metaverse long before many others are. Well, this is true, but it is, you have to admit that it is a very small pilot. I mean, it's, we, we're, we're not NFTing anything. We're not monetizing. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's early days to, to monetize anything, especially on, on Decentraland. But, but I think we're taking very uh, important steps and, and hopefully, you know, we'll have people turning around and saying, well, you did something brave. Let's do something brave in the future together. And Johanna, I'm curious, have you yeah. noticed, you've mentioned a couple of different uh, metaverses that you're exploring and some of the Web3 and some of the Web2 type metaverses. Have you noticed yeah. any difference in how you're engaging users, the different demographics or particular approaches to kind of what works comparing to these different platforms? Well, first of all, it's really difficult to engage, um, at least on Decentraland, with anyone except in real time. And obviously, they come. Uh, they tend to come either with their crypto wallet or as a guest. And if they're a guest, they disappear. But since we have this voting application that, that you can um, you can like sign into a guest book, and uh, and we just closed it actually, actually yesterday. And then we'll be sending out the the snapshots uh, voting application to to all those people who wanted to to be a part of it. And that'll be the first kind of direct link that we have with them. They'll be voting on the next themes for the pavilion. But as far as actually having uh, discussions with people who visit, it's really difficult. I mean, you use Web two and social media to kind of in, induce people to go to Web three, but then you have no idea when they go, what they do, because you know, it's decentralized and we don't know who they are. So, so there's no feedback form actually. And, and that's, that's something that I'm sure Decentraland is working on and trying to figure out, you know, how can I ask someone other than being there in real life and, and ask them, asking them. It, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? Cause it feels to me like what's happening is it feels like everything is being thrown out. Let's start again with these, with this, the new web three kind of concept. Whereas as, as I started off saying, I feel like Web3 will probably actually be more of a natural evolution and progression of what we already have, because to your point, the ability to kind of have an asynchronous kind of conversation like you can do on Web2 is really valuable. So I guess, of course, they might start bringing those sorts of features in. I love the fact it's sort of brave and it's new and it's experimental and it's interesting. But Colin, I wanted to kind of talk to you for a minute about sort of some of the, the I suppose, the pyramid underneath all this stuff. And because I know you were looking at Ethereum, weren't you? And there was a fascinating sort of bit of data that you shared with me the other day about Ethereum, developing on Ethereum. I just wonder what your sort of experiences have been with sort of experimenting with, with that. Yeah, I guess this brings me to starting to get my, put my critical hat on. Apologies to everyone in the room. But uh, it, it does feel like we're bundling up a lot of things together here. Um, you, there's already been a little bit of chat about Web2 metaverses. Or, or in Web three metaverse, I don't know where the metaverse is 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 attached to Web three. You, you mentioned things like uh, Roblox, Minecraft. There are some very large virtual worlds that have been in existence and incredibly popular for a long time without there ha there being any association to um, cryptocurrency. I'm not sure that the two naturally have to be attached because virtual reality worlds, I, I think, are 
are a fantastic idea and I think they, they will have a very long shelf life and they will evolve and, and get better and better. It's the association with the, the world of crypto that I find, to be honest, a little bit worrying in some regards. And, and Ollie, you mentioned some of the stuff I've been doing recently. I've been looking into Ethereum development in a little bit more detail and almost sort of kicking the tires on Decentraland. And just some of the numbers just don't add up. So Decentraland was valued at 1.2 billion. And it's that, that value is as a result of the market capitalization of their cryptocurrency. And I can't even remember the token that they've created. Um, given that they have 8,000 active users, that means the value of each user is around about $150,000, which is clearly quite ridiculous when you look at probably one of the, another acquisition at Microsoft uh, purchased LinkedIn, and I forget the exact number, but it was around about $150 per active user. This, this sort of indicates that the sort of capitalization of Decentraland appears to be out by a factor of around about a thousand. And this is because of a lot of the hype that's, that's built up around cryptocurrency and also things like Ethereum, um, using Ethereum recently, uh, the, the fees for using Ethereum are, are mind boggling. Just deploying a contract costs around about 20 US dollars for the simplest of contracts. I think there's going to be some serious economic turmoil. And I think it would be a shame if that brought down some of the really cool stuff that, that you're doing in sharing art through what is effectively a, a virtual reality. Mm. I think that's amazing mm. and that's awesome. Mm. I just wish it didn't have the crypto angle. Mm. Lily, I wonder if you've got sort of thoughts yeah. on, on, on this one. I'm baiting you a little bit here, sorry. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think actually a lot of the Colin's concerns, I, I, I bet Oliver, you're going to be quite shocked, but I think they're not completely unfounded. It's a lot of unpacking that statement. I think to start with, I, I would agree with Colin that you don't necessarily need a virtual environment, an immersive um, virtual world to necessarily be attached to crypto. I think the moment you add crypto to the mix, it changes the dynamics and it changes to a large extent how you engage users. From kind of my perspective, the addition of Web3 components to an immersive environment like the metaverse, what it does is digitally native ownership and identity in a way that they weren't available before. And it puts, it kind of slightly shifts the dynamic of power in the ecosystem, giving the user a little bit more control over their data, a little bit more control over what they own and how. That being said, when we start talking about particular metaverses, that's kind of where I become a little bit more conflicted because to a large extent, I would agree that it's really, really early in the journey. How much of these spaces have proven themselves is very much open to debate. And how, which, which is going to be the winning business model, again, is, is open to debate. Where I would probably caution a little bit is throwing the baby up with the bathwater too early. And the reason for that is that what we've noticed is kind of in my interaction with the market is a lot of clients are still very much like Johanna in the exploratory trade, is trying to figure out, is that even for us? What yes. is how we can engage and who we can engage with, is that in any way adding to our business model? And the value of that exploration itself, I think it's worth taking the time to do it. Because for some of the clients I work with, I've noticed that they are finding an interesting way to engage new users, new demographics that they previously didn't have access to. But again, I think in the short term, we're overestimating the impact. And in the long term, we probably are underestimating it. So I would probably say, let's continue exploring but do keep that skeptical mind to make sure that we throw out the things that aren't necessary and the things that haven't really proven themselves. The problem is we've got, it's the first time I've seen 
technology where it's deeply coupled to speculation and it's created its own financial market that hasn't happened before other other technologies that have completely changed the world are things like mobile phones but no one speculated on mobile phones there weren't people buying thousands of mobile phones because they Just think case, oh, actually yeah. they'll be worth a little bit more in the future yeah. but that's exactly what happens in the web 3 world and it it has it has an impact it has a, a knock on as as the speculation grows as the price of ethereum grows the price of actually operating on that platform increases in lockstep with the successful speculation on that platform and also the opposite is true as well when it collapses it brings the whole house down with it so again it's it's the coupling i, I don't uh, i'm really uh, not keen on but i do agree with lily that, that we we overestimate the impact of things in the short term and underestimate the impact long term and the, re and the reason i'm there are some other fundamentals to look at but i think Colin's called out some very good cautionary sort of fundamentals that exist in the world right now of tech in this space. But the other fundamental, though, is how much time uh, someone is spending looking at their mobile device. And the mobile device, let's be honest, isn't the most ideal experience or the ideal way to interact with other people or even with, even with work, right? I mean, it's, it's useful when you've got some time to kill and you need to sort of send someone a message. But we can all probably agree it's not the, you know, the best experience that, that, that we'll probably have. And so I think... What we're sort of seeing is some experiments in how, going back to my point about human computer interaction, we're seeing some of that experimentation. And we're also seeing some of that experimentation about how we sort of operate, you know, the, the DAO concept, you know, the distributed autonomous organization is fascinating. Like how, you know, you can have a whole, a bit like the open source movement, Colin, right? I mean, for me, the DAO feels like open source, but applied to whole organizations or industries that you can have sort of collaboration on a commercial scale. Uh, or, or, or yeah, you can create organization out of, out of the internet in a way that I think open source software has proven. So there's some bits here that for me are quite exciting. And you look at the fundamentals of the fact that people are using technology more and more in their lives, but it's not quite good enough. You, and, but, but yeah, you look at some of the metaverses that are available and they're not quite good enough either. So that, yeah, it's all very new, isn't it? And I think it's easy to kind of get very dismissive of all this and say it's overhyped. The other thing I would say, Colin, is I fear that you and I are possibly in the demographic bracket now <laughs> where actually... Right. So like if you or I were our age when the internet came out, would you you and I be as like pro internet as we are, you know, or, or where when, when we were kind of developing the early internet? So, you know, websites and the early internet. I, co I completely agree. And that's 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 one of the uses of having children, you know, <laughs> they, they, they have they have some use. I mean, my, my kids play a lot on Minecraft and Roblox and uh, and whilst I sometimes shake my head, I can see the value that they get from that yeah. and I can. I can see that it's a genuinely different experience to the kinds of computer games that I used to play. And I don't just mean in terms of the fidelity and the graphics. Yeah. It's a fundamentally different experience. Mm, yeah. So go on, John. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that um, a colleague of mine tells a story about his 13-year-old uh, son who spends his time on Roblox and actually hangs out with his friends. And he said that if I wanted to buy him art, I would actually buy it in Roblox and not in his room because he doesn't look at the walls. He looks at his friends on Roblox. Which is kind of like, I like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned about um, approaching, I forget the name of the team, to build your art gallery. Yeah. I was thinking, if I could let my kids know that, my daughter spent a good months recreating Hogwarts oh my in goodness. Minecraft. Yeah. And it is huge. It's unbelievable, mm. epic. And if I told her that, that maybe you could get a job, maybe you're the new architect. Yes. You could get a job doing that. Oh it should be super exciting. They just started a studio in Paris. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I completely agree. Our perspectives are going to be slightly different. Mm, mm. But actually, and, and, and I'll build on that because I, I wouldn't disagree with you. I think in the same way that if you look at early 2000, kind of the dot-com bubble, that in the same way that there was too much hype in that point and people that knew nothing about tech stocks invested in them, I think to a large extent crypto is the same. What's really important, I think where people very often, as I say, throw the baby out with the bathwater is they mix up the crypto is full of hype and scams with crypto is too hyped and scams. And I think these are two very different statements. If we are to have a constructive conversation, we need to make a difference between them and really start sifting out what is the really valuable activity. And if you look at the community over the last, I don't know, six, eight months, or particularly when the bear market started getting really bad, one of the things that's really interesting is prices of crypto are down, but the number of users aren't down. The number of activity in terms of people building and people genuinely investing money in applications and big, big problem solving hasn't really decreased that significantly. And for me, that kind of gives me a little hope that actually in the long term, this is a space that will produce some really meaningful change to society. And I also wonder if you look at sort of some of the experiment, the experimentation that I know, for example, the Bank of England is doing around sort of a, a central bank digital currency. I do wonder whether there's just a few sort of building blocks that aren't quite there yet, mm. which, because I think a lot of people say, well, you can't buy things with Ethereum because it's too expensive. Like you couldn't, you couldn't buy a McDonald's or something or a very fast food uh, you know, meal with, because it just, it would be more expensive to pay the transaction fees yeah. than the whole, the whole meal itself. Um, but I wonder whether that's just because it's more designed for DAOs at the moment. So maybe the transactions are actually transferring as, you know, shared asset value in a joint venture that you're doing rather than actually. And the payment, the purchasing piece is still not quite solved yet. Mm. So I, I kind of, I do wonder whether there's just a few pieces that need to sort of slot into place. And we're still very much in that experimentation and dream sort of phase. You know, what could this be? Yeah, we, we are in the experimentation phase. But again, because of the link to crypto, some of the experimentation can be incredibly dangerous. I used to quite like the concept of smart contracts, DAOs and so on. The, the whole notion that you could have code whereby the code is law. Once that contract was deployed to the blockchain, it, it, it remained unchanged and you had to abide by the, the, the laws of that contract. But there have been numerous instances where there have been bugs in the contracts. And because it's a cryptocurrency world, if you lose in the world of cryptocurrency, you're, you don't have any, any fallback options. Whereas in the, in the fiat currency world and, um, in, in the UK, there's quite a lot of scams going on at the moment, you know, people, uh, being persuaded to sort of do money transfers, thinking it's a family member, that sort of thing. You have a huge safety net there. Um, if your bank. If your bank goes under, you're protected up to £70,000 for your for the contents of your current account. There are safety nets on multiple levels which just don't exist in the cryptocurrency world. So it's whilst I agree that it's going to take time for it to settle down, I, I still can't get over the fact that it's quite it can be quite a dangerous environment at the moment. Yeah, I agree. And I think it, the whole idea of regulation and, and, uh, and decentralization, how, how far to either side do you, do you want to go? I think that's really interesting yeah. and that, that'll be the crux of the next few years of yeah. how everything turns out. And just out of interest, has anyone got any ideas around how regulation could be applied to something where it's been designed in such a way yeah. that it's entirely decentralized, code is law? Uh, whilst I, I think it needs an element of, de of regulation, I honestly can't see how that can be applied. So that's yeah. almost the, the, the yeah. antithesis to what it, what it fundamentally is. 
what was really interesting for me recently was looking at what happened with Ethereum with the the, the fork and the move to you know, 2.0 where where it's moved to proof of uh, work rather than sorry proof of stake rather than proof of work. And what was interesting is people say it's sort of ungovernable or un, you know not easy to regulate. But actually, if you think about how that change and that transition happened, it was possible to make that big fundamental change. So I think it is possible through some of the platforms to kind of push out these big changes. But I think it's it's a different model than just sort of applying some laws. It's it's clearly hardwired into the almost the um, yeah, the infrastructure of of, of the, eco, the technology ecosystem. So it's it's almost like version control. Uh, in a way, Colin, I think for for like how this gets regulated, it's like okay, this doesn't work, so we now need to push out a new version of this, which we all get, we all agree consensus on is the right version to kind of fix that problem. It kind of feels like that voting sort of style, and actually, the challenge with that, of course, is if 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 everyone kind of agrees and is happy, you get you get the right outcome. But 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 you know, there, there isn't that sort of big heavy hand of governance. It's that truly kind of, I suppose, crowd you know, adoption of a new version that would, would get you in the right direction, which is a completely different sort of direction from government-based governance, I suppose. It's, it's a distributed model of governance rather than, or a crowd governance model rather than a central governance model, which is, is really difficult because what happens if the crowd doesn't make the right decisions? You know, uh, you have to trust the crowd, I think, to make the right choices. And I think that's how this stuff gets regulated when it's the decentralized sort of um, infrastructure piece of this is that everyone needs to have consensus that, yes, there's something that's broken, and we now need to implement something that fixes that bug. You know, so, so it's almost like governance via bug fixing and version control rather than governance by heavy-handed regulation. I think, of course, regulation will play a part in this. Of course it will. But I think some of this stuff is fixed by the crowd kind of... Maybe it's, uh, yeah, maybe it's a bit of an anti-pattern. I don't know. So an interesting sort of one to sort of think about. Do you, maybe we'll get the same problem, though, that we get with the other centralized platforms like Facebook that uh, in the past few years, there's been a lot of debate as to whether Facebook are a media agency, whether they are a publisher of news or whether they are simply a effectively a dumb platform that allows people to share their own views. And I think opinion seems to be shifting more towards Facebook having to take responsibility for the content that it publishes on its platform. I do wonder whether Ethereum uh, the people within Ethereum feel they have a responsibility for what their platform's utilized for or whether they're taking a kind of Facebook of three or four years ago stance of we built the platform, you know, we set out the roles, but if people either use those roles for nefarious purposes, that's their business. I guess it needs to be a serious enough problem for the community to kind of wake up and go, do you know what, we're going to do something about this. So it's not for your small problems, but Lily, I, I can say to you probably... Uh... Yeah, yeah. I got a view on this one. I think it's really interesting that it's a very important topic that you brought up. And the merge was a really good test case for that, because one of the things that happened is whilst the majority of the community decided to adopt the new code and transition to proof of stake, there was a small um, fraction of people that were basically not too pleased. And we saw a big migration of hash rate either to Ethereum Classic or, or basically Ethereum proof of work, which kind of they, they try to amend the code to go back to mining proof of work. But what we saw over the last, what is it, four or five weeks since the merge is that that proof of work fork, the price now is £5.17 per coin. That enough tells you, is that a viable network to continue its existence? And my personal view is that it probably isn't. It probably is going to die slow, painful debt until the point that it becomes financially, economically unviable to continue mining proof of work on, on that chain if you can't if you can't get the value in the token. 
I was just going to say, I'd be very happy if mine, if mining became a thing of the past, if, if they can, uh, can, if they can do a similar thing and create Bitcoin too, the world will be a better place. Well, this is why I've not got involved in the space and it's why Ethereum 2.0 and the proof of stake potentially opens up the possibility of me getting involved in it. Cause I just, from a amount of energy consumed perspective, and I, I blogged about this many years ago, that it, it's, it's kind of like, just, it's, it's. You know, it's not digital gold because it's just sort of spending so much energy. It's, it's, yeah, anyway, I, I just fundamentally had an issue with it. I agree with you. I think it'd be nice if, if proof of um, work can be a thing of the past because it does feel like a massive waste of, uh, of energy. Um, but fundamentally for me, I guess this is all about kind of having confidence in the crowd and trusting the crowd to do the right thing. And unfortunately, if you look at social media and you look at the crowd, Often you get polarization and you don't, you don't get sensible sort of behavior. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this actually sort of works in practice. Now, the idea of decentralization from a sort of democracy point of view is interesting. If I become a node and I, I give the permission to, to some media or some, you may approach me with, with some things, I become my own bubble. I mean, I don't get um, sort of contradicting information or news or, or, uh, or things to buy. At all, so I'm a little bit confused about uh, whether decentralization is a is a is a vehicle for democracy or not. And, and the other thing about decentralization, and I'd be interested in your thoughts, Lilia or anyone else, is actually decentralization potentially means if you've got enough money, you can buy enough nodes and you can buy enough influence on the network. That actually, how how you know sort of individualistic is this? It's actually if you look at the amount of people mining. There, there, there was sort of Bitcoin, I think, if, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a relatively small number of sort of large cooperatives that do the mining. So how real, how the de, how individualistic and decentralized some of this stuff is, is, is debatable because ultimately, unfortunately, money plays, plays, a, plays a corrupting role in the division of this stuff. My take is, I guess, with proof of stake, if you, if you bought enough nodes and, and staked those nodes, you, you created a, a dominant force, uh, you would then be able to... Uh, you know, rewrite transactions, do whatever you like, but you would immediately crash the price of Ethereum. So everything you staked will have been lost. And I think that's the the way that proof of stake is supposed to keep the world honest, as it were. Yeah. Lily? Well, in theory, you might have a point. In practice, Ethereum has so many nodes that I don't think it's economically viable. Now, I'm trying to Google the latest number of Ethereum nodes and there's very conflicting numbers, but it's, we're talking about tens of thousands of nodes to stake 32 ETH for every node. Chances of that happening are rather slim. And also the other, the other kind of nuance to consider is that in a proof of proof of work mining, people can take in and out their computing power fairly easily. They're not, they're not bound, which means the moment the, um, the mining pool starts behaving in a way that somebody's uncomfortable with, it's very easy to pull, pull your mining power out and move somewhere else. So in that respect, I don't think that necessarily impacts centralization that much. Um, and with proof of stake, that's supposedly even easier. So I don't yeah. know. It, it's debatable. It's a much it's a much better model. As if if I was looking to try to game the proof of work system, I wouldn't be wanting to use my own computer. I'd be uh, creating viruses, bots to control other people's computers and use their power uh, to to game the network. And again, proof of stake. You just can't do that. Mm. The, the, it's a much better system. 
So this is a complex topic, right? And we can go in a number of different directions of this one. Um, but I think perhaps we should start to try and move towards some sort of conclusions and some views. And I guess there are, you know, going into this call, we all had our sort of views. I'd be interested to know if anyone sort of shifted their position on on anything. But I mean, I I, I think, as, as you all know, I'm pretty pragmatic about stuff. And I think there are elements of this that I see being massively successful. There are elements of this that I think will become the next Betamax. Perhaps technically they were a a brilliant idea, but the, the the better marketed VHS solution came along and and and, and will win. Uh, and I also truly believe there are some things that are currently being bundled together, which could actually and should actually evolve sort of separately. And it'd be interesting to see if they come they do come back together later when they're in the sort of more uh, developed guise. But um, yeah, Hannah, it'd be interesting to sort of hear you know, your sort of thoughts on where the gallery has kind of got to with this. You know, what, what what's your sort of take on? on this sort of experiment and what sort of next, I suppose. The, the pavilion will go on until the end of the year, uh, for sure. We'll do some more um, some more events on Decentraland in the pavilion to to um, invite people to come along and, and, and interact with us uh, due to the end of the year. But um, I think after that, we'll, we'll kind of exhale and take it easy and, and figure out what we learned from the research that's being done by the University of Oulu. And I think we'll be looking into collaboration in, as the next step, uh, figure out, figuring out what to do in collaboration, both with the art, art world and with technology, and, uh, and do a second project that won't look like what we did on Decentraland. And it might not be on Decentraland, it might be something completely different, but, uh, but for sure, we'll leave the risk taking to the big companies and uh, and we'll keep on taking these baby steps and uh, you know in a couple of years you'll probably find the Finnish National Gallery sort of in in the in the game but not in the center I think that's where we're going we look forward to it <laughs> yeah definitely I'd still prefer to come to Finland oh, please do please do and the physical museums are here and uh, and they're not going anywhere I'm this is a discussion we have inside the, the gallery or the uh, the museum as well it's this is not being done instead of the physical museums. This is an addition yeah. and a separate funding. And, and yeah, so. Look forward to hearing more about that. Lily. I still have faith in, in the technology. I, I do think we need to apply a very skeptical mind. We need to resolve a lot of issues around regulation, consumer protection, uh, scalability, definitely. I think the points that Colin made around the cost of transactions is a very, very important one if, if this is ever going to gain mass adoption. But I'm long-term bullish. Colin. Yeah, I, I still have my doubts. I, I can't help thinking that Web3 is basically blockchain's second roll of the dice. So <laughs> blockchain's been through the hype cycle and they've gone, let's have a second go. Let's call it Web3. <laughs> can't do that. You, you had your time. That was five years ago. Colin, um, now you're getting commission from Gartner. Confess now. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. No, they wouldn't want me doing their hype cycles. <laughs> they, they'd be far too cynical. Uh, but I, the, thing, I, the thing is, I can't help but you know, appreciate people doing creative things with technology. And it's, it's a constant battle uh, in my own mind between you know, being critical and being a bit cynical, I guess, at times about technology, but understanding that that, that, might, that might dampen the ability to... Um, get really creative with technology but i guess what i kind of hope is that maybe maybe this is creating a, a bit of a wave that some people are riding riding on top of creating creative ideas you know an art gallery in the metaverse and i have a feeling that perhaps some of the technology that sits underneath it will crash and burn i hope that something else comes up 
so that you can continue to to ride that wave. I I wouldn't want that to stop. Awesome, Oliver. What about yourself? I, I have to say, I I I think there are bits of this that I definitely see winning out. However, I don't, I just don't. I think I think there are there are pockets of this that are working well. I just don't see them all coming together. Yeah, and I, I I'll explain what I mean. I think if you look at the really immersive experiences, those are the Minecrafts, the Roblox, the gaming world, right? And it almost feels like the business world has gone, oh, we don't want this to be associated with gaming, so we're going to start again. But the problem is they've actually created stuff that looks even worse than games consoles from about three generations ago. <laughs> so actually what they should have done, what they should have done was just embrace the gaming thing and gone, do you know what we're going to use? Much like the, you know, some consumer technologies become business technologies, but actually immersive worlds are genuine, have genuine business value because I, I genuinely think they will. Because I think COVID sort of taught us that, that we need better ways of collaborating when we can't be in person. Not only because of COVID, but because of sustainability reasons. We need to stop flying around the world in order to going to do business with each other. So an immersive experience for, 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 is required for a number of different reasons. But I think the reality is it won't quite be the way it's configured right now. And the ecosystem needs some shaking up. I think it's, you know, we've obviously had a nice debate about the element of crypto and, uh, and so on and decentralized technologies plays in this. I definitely, if anyone listening to this hasn't watched Ready Player One, it's definitely worth going out and watching just to sort of see what one potential vision of, uh, it's a bit dystopian, but you know, ultimately that's where computer gaming kind of graphics could go. It's to create like a more immersive embedded world because this stuff needs to be beautiful. I think human beings like the you know, aesthetically pleasing things. And I don't think some of the technologies we're looking at right now are quite, are quite there. So I think I am in the longer term optimistic on this stuff. I think we will... We will do conference calls. We will do things like this we're doing now in a, in a virtual ex immersive experience at some point when the hardware, the headsets are better, when the platforms kind of talk to each other and it's more interoperable. But yeah, at the moment, I think I echo what Colin said. I applaud anyone like Johanna and her team working in this space because it's a brave frontier. It's a bit like the Wild West. You know, there's, 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 a, there's a technology rush going on and we're all sort of working stuff out. But uh, yeah, I think in conclusion, this, this feels like version 0 0.2 uh, and we're somewhere away from even a version 1.0 yet. And I think to get mass adoption, it probably needs to be version 2.0. So ironically, whilst we're talking about web 3.0, the reality is a lot of this stuff is actually metaverse 0 0.2. Um, and I think web 3.0 will be something quite different from what everyone is calling it. And that's, that, that's my view. It's pretty good. 